Well, good morning, you guys. It's great to have you guys back. Uh, we have missed you guys. I hope you guys had a great spring break. Uh, Marcy and I actually took a week off as you guys were gone and headed to California for a week. We got to spend a week in San Diego and had just an awesome time. Actually, our little girl Caroline went for one of her first swims ever. Uh, here's a picture of her donning the sunglasses. Um, you may also notice from the picture, uh, as many people asked us, why after a week in California are we not bronzed or tanned? It's because Caroline, as does her mom and dad, suffer from a genetic condition in which we are pale and pasty. So a week in California means we go pale to red and back to pale, as does our girl. So uh, we are glad to have you guys back, though. I had a great time. And uh, if you guys are, are anything like me, though, the week back from spring break is always a little rough. Uh, it's always a little rough to get back in the mix. It's always a little rough to get back into school. And I don't know what your week has been like, but uh, it was actually the same for us. It's kind of rough getting back in the flow. And so I thought for some of you guys that have been here all semester, or some of y'all who may be visiting uh, for the first time this morning, I'm going to give you guys a reminder of where we've been this semester. We've been tackling week after week some of the hardest and dis- difficult questions that are out there. We've been all over the map from interpretive theological things to social issues. We've covered homosexuality. We've covered abortion. We've covered is the Bible reliable. We've kind of been all over the place this semester. And we're going to be continuing that this morning as we continue to take one more difficult question this week. Um, and I thought in order to kind of get us back in the flow, I thought we might turn to uh, the provocative theological movie known as Nacho Libre. Here you go. I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me. Because I only believe in science. But tonight, we are going up against Satan's caveman. And I just thought it would be a good idea if you... All right. I know you probably didn't expect a little Nacho Libre this Sunday morning, but I thought let's kind of get back in the mood. And and why? Why Nacho Libre? I I love this quote because I think it introduces kind of the question of our morning, and that's this. Is eternal life a completely free gift? In order to enter into the relationship with Jesus Christ, in order to enter into the front door uh, and have your sins forgiven and to receive eternal life, what is required? According to Nacho Libre, the movie, apparently baptism is required, and we'll kind of talk about that this morning. But what's required to get into the front door and into a relationship with Jesus Christ? Interesting enough, historically through the church, through different denominations, that answer is very diverse. And so we're going to kind of walk through that this morning. And the idea being this, is eternal life an absolutely free gift? There are so many things in life that they sound in their offer like something that's free, but the sooner that you get closer to it and you begin to actually try to receive it, you realize that there's all kinds of strings attached. The question I want to ask this morning is, in order to receive eternal life, is it absolutely free, or are there some strings that are attached that you don't realize until you get a little close to it? My submission to you guys this morning is that it is absolutely free, that there are no strings attached. And so where we're going to go this morning is, in a sense, try to cut off some common strings that are attached to this reception of eternal life. I want to show to you guys this morning that it is an absolutely free gift, and no matter what you would add to it, nothing you can add to it should be what could be included in, in one's reception of it. It is an absolutely free gift, and it comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone through grace. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we'll kind of jump into the text this morning. Father God, we give you great thanks as we come before you this morning, and we beg and we ask, Lord, that you would give us a fresh sense of you. I don't know where we've all been over spring break. I don't know where we are even this morning after a week of classes back in the fold, Lord. But I know for many of us, our hearts and our minds are just trying to maintain a little bit of focus this morning. 
And whether we even feel it to a large extent or not, Lord, there's a desperate need in, in all of us for more of you. Um, Lord, we're thirsty and we're hungry. We just ask this morning, this time would be a lot more than just a bunch of communication of ideas and random stories, Lord, but that you would come and that you would intervene in the midst of this and that you would move in ways beyond our, even our own anticipation this morning. That you give us hearts that would be responsive, that you would give us ears to hear, Lord, and that more than anything, uh, that you wouldn't let us just to understand, but that you would allow us to see you this morning. And that your son would come near, that we could be drawn near to him this morning by the time we leave, no matter where we've started, no matter where we are this morning, Lord. We just ask that you would show yourself, um, that you would move in a powerful way, Lord. We ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Would you guys turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We're going to kind of start off there this morning. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. We'll have it up on the screen for you. We're going to kind of start off in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 say this. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul puts it really clearly that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, that the reception of eternal life, the forgiveness of your sins, entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ is a gift. It is an absolutely free gift, meaning as a gift, it is something you received absolutely freely. There's nothing you can do to receive it because it is granted freely to you. That's going to be my main point this morning to you guys, is that grace, salvation, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, is something that is provided to you and received to you absolutely freely, no cost. In fact, though, for many, though, they're going to put conditions upon that, and we're going to kind of walk through that. Paul's going to put it really clearly, though, that it is not by works. One of the most clear kind of additions or strings that gets attached to faith is the addition of works. And in fact, it's kind of where we're going to go next, and that the idea being that if it's received freely, then it's not received by faith and works. Honestly, I'm going to give you guys three strings, and each of these three strings are things that are, in a sense, added to faith, and it's added to faith because it has a close relationship with faith. And because of the close relationship these three strings I'm going to show you have with faith, it often gets added to faith as a requirement to get in the front door and to receive eternal life. One of those is works. Uh, we'll talk even in two weeks, more, uh, two weeks from today a lot more about the relationship between faith and works. But the question is, what is the relationship between faith and works? And it's answered in two different places. It's answered at the front door as you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then it's answered in a different way on the back door as you've already entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ and you've begun to walk with Him. That question is answered in two different ways. Here's how Paul begins to answer it, Romans chapter 3. We read to you guys this morning, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 24. Paul writes, By the works of the law no flesh will be justified in sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul puts it really clearly, there's nothing you can do to merit eternal life. There's no kind of change of behavior. There's no kind of actions. There's nothing you can do or begin to construct that would be an acceptable, pleasing offer to Jesus Christ that could get you eternal life. There's nothing that you can do. In fact, Paul will flip it on the, on, on the opposite end and say that what you actually need to do is stop doing things. <laughs> Romans chapter 4, he writes, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor or a gift, something that's free, but it is credited as what is due. It's what you've earned. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Paul will say in Romans chapter 4 that as you enter the front door into a relationship with Jesus Christ, at that front door, faith and works could not be more separate. In fact, there's a big gigantic contrast between them because works will get you absolutely nothing as you try to get in the front door. In a sense, if there was a bouncer at the front door that was going to determine whether you could get eternal life, if you came with faith and works, he's going to reject you. Because if works will get you nothing, and the only thing that's required to get in the front door is faith. Because it is only faith, it is by grace, because you're going to get what you don't merit, what you can't earn, and therefore it is absolutely free. Because you and I are going to be able to get something that we can never earn, never work for, and never merit. 
And so for many within the Catholic Church, for example, you're going to hear this message that the way that you merit the favor of God, the way that you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ is through faith and works. It's not enough what you believe, you must pair it with how you live. So for me, I actually grew up uh, going through junior high and high school, went through high school, I was at a Baptist church, but I was going to a Catholic private school, okay? So I heard two entirely different messages that was absolutely clear. That in order at a Catholic church, in order in Catholic theology, in order to be saved or to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it mattered what you did. I think the scriptures are absolutely clear that it matters not what you do because the only way that you're accepted before Jesus Christ is through faith, through a belief in Jesus Christ's death and his resurrection. Because there's nothing that you can do that will outweigh what you've done already that was a transgression of God's commands. Romans chapter 3, you've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of that sin, which you've earned because of your sin, is eternal separation from God. It's death. It's a separation from him relationally. And so no matter how well you do, no matter how many good things you do, no matter how many times you come to church, no matter how many times you read your Bible, there's nothing that you can stack up that will overcome the sin that's already been credited to your account that will always separate you from God. And the only way that that sin is removed is through the death of Jesus Christ and a belief in Him that there excuses you of your debt. That it does not matter what you do, it does not matter how well you live, that the most murderous person and the most holy person that together, if one has faith and the other does it, only the one that has faith, no matter how they live, will be entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It matters not what you do. Another example, I think, is not just faith and works, but faith and baptism. Many will say, like in the movie Nacho Libre, that in order to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, in order to enter into the front door, what you also must do is be baptized. In many regards, it's kind of like if you've ever received anything in the mail that offered you a free car, free vacation, what you've got to do is read the fine print, because in the fine print, you're going to see some strings that get attached and in fact, I was laughing this week. I had lunch with a guy who uh, was asking me about our trip in California. And uh, he knows me really well, which why well, I thought the question was even more humorous. He asked me if we actually went clubbing in California, which is kind of funny because I'm a pastor. I'm 30. I'm married. And we had our baby on our trip with us. You know, and so it's kind of awkward. What do you, you know, you go dancing at night in a club. And imagine showing up the front door of a club with a baby you know, in, in a car seat. I'm thinking we're probably not getting in, right? Okay, entrance in is not always unconditional from most everything that you and I would ever venture into, all right? But in order to venture into a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's nothing that you can do because based on what you've already done, you've already blown it. <laughs> there's nothing you can do to resolve that problem and fix that mess. And so Jesus Christ was sent so that he could die on your behalf, so that he could intervene and fix what you could not fix. And on the basis of his death and belief and reception in that, you and I are granted something freely that's by grace because we get what we don't deserve. But in many cases, I think the next string I want to give you guys is the string of baptism that for many denominations will add to this. And here's why they'll do it. They'll say that in order to be saved, you must believe and be baptized. Um, that's kind of Nacho Libre's point or Jack Beck's point in the movie that, hey, why have you not been baptized? All right. In order for them to, uh, you know, venture in and have this great wrestling match, he wants to make sure that his buddy is right with the Lord. And, and in order for him to be right with the Lord, he concludes that he must be baptized. All right. So do you have to be baptized to have your sins forgiven and to receive eternal life? Absolutely not. All right. But there are denominations that will say that. And, and I'm not going to slam them because I think there's actually some good biblical texts that would make one think that. All right. Here's where they get this idea. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. I'm going to give you guys a few of the examples where this idea might seem to come forth from the scriptures, and then I want to kind of buttress it or try to explain it for you. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. All right, do you have to believe and be baptized to be forgiven of your sins? Acts chapter 2 would kind of begin to sound like that, wouldn't it? All right, even more, Mark chapter 16, verse 16. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, 
but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. All right, Mark 16, Acts 2, really give you a couple passages that begin to make you think that you must pair baptism with faith in order to get in the front door, so to speak. Um, well, why would I say no? I'll give you guys a couple of reasons. One, notice that he's going to say to be saved, it will include baptism and belief, but to be condemned, if you didn't get in the door, it was not because you lacked baptism, but because you lacked faith. All right? Baptism is going to be paired with faith. In fact, if you walk through the book of Acts, what you see in a way that's really different than what you see in our day and time and the way we do church is that the moment someone believed, boom, where's the water? We're dunking them, all right? It was immediate, okay? In fact, they almost sometimes didn't even share the gospel unless there was water around because it was just boom, believe, boom, water, all right? Uh, Those were joined so clearly together, okay? And yet for us, in the way that historically and culturally we do church, we've kind of begun to separate those out in a way. And I think part of the reason we've begun to separate those out is because baptism isn't crucial to get in. But baptism is a sign of what's already happened, spiritually speaking. In fact, I think 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 is really important. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Notice, as Paul's going about trying to move people into the front do- or through the front door into a relationship with Jesus Christ so that their sins could be forgiven, what is he doing? He's preaching the gospel. He's not challenging toward baptism, okay? So baptism is not a requirement to get in the front door. It's not a string attached to what seemed like a free offer, right? But it is a free offer only through belief. And belief, though, is paired with baptism because there's a natural relationship between the two. A natural relationship that you see in the book of Acts that the moment you believe, you're baptized as quickly as possible, okay? But what is baptism? Baptism is simply this. It does two different functions. One is it, it, it is a public declaration of your identification and association with Jesus Christ. So baptism, though, interestingly enough, we typically do in the walls of the church, and so it's a public declaration to the family. But I think ultimately baptism was meant to be a public declaration to the community, saying, hey, I am with Jesus Christ. In fact, the ritual itself was meant to be a symbol of what had already happened spiritually. So a person is dunked underwater, showing and symbolizing that they've been united with Jesus Christ in his death and his burial. And then they're raised out of the waters, symbolizing that they've been cleaned and they've been washed, and they're raised to newness of life with Jesus Christ. It was meant to be a a physical picture of a reality that had already happened. And so they believed, and then they were baptized. And I think what begins to happen, especially as these are wedded together so closely in the book of Acts, is that some begin to take these as as baptism as if it was a requirement. Let me kind of give you guys a modern-day example of what I think that sounds like in our day and time and how we do church. I grew up in a Baptist church, so every Sunday morning, altar call, right? Right? People are challenged to believe Jesus, and then they're invited to walk forward, okay? And sometimes the command and the invitation to walk forward wasn't even paired with the command to believe. It was just, hey, come forward, come to Jesus, okay? And part of that idea was that in that, late in that idea was believe. And that as you believed, if you believed, you would then respond in coming forward. It wasn't that if you walked the aisle, that work got you saved, right? But that walking the aisle was a response or a representation of a faith or a belief that one had just placed and made. And it was quickly paired with that decision. Another example I'd say um, would be uh, if you've ever heard of the sinner's prayer. So sometimes when we challenge people, hey, trust in Jesus Christ, we say, hey, pray this prayer. Pray that in a recognition that you are a sinner, that you've been separated from Jesus Christ, that he died, he resurrected, and he showed that he has the ability and the authority to forgive your sin. And if you'll pray that prayer, you'll be saved. All right. The prayer itself doesn't save you. (laughs) But it is the faith that's exercised within that prayer that saves you. And that had already saved you as you actually exercised that prayer. That makes sense? 
So I think as you walk through the Acts, you see that kind of paired together, that it wasn't baptism that was an action that actually brought someone through the front door into a relationship with Jesus Christ, but it was actually faith that was responded and shown within baptism. All right? So I don't think baptism is, is, an, is a string that's attached at all in any way kind of form to faith as a requirement to get in the front door. All right. Last string that I'm going to give you guys is a whole different idea, and I'm going to spend a little more time on it because I think it is one of the most common ones that you guys hear today. I know who you listen to on podcasts. I know typically who you guys are reading, okay? I think one of the most common strings that's attached today in our evangelical circles to faith is a string that is based on a misrepresentation and a misunderstanding of one specific word, okay? Here's the next string. Um, I was going to say, if you've never been baptized, all right, it's not a work, but I encourage you guys that it is a process of discipleship. It's a step you take. And if you've never done that, we usually do those once a semester. You can simply email me if you'd like to uh, ask questions about that or if you'd be interested in doing that. All right, but what's the next string? Some will say that the way that one receives eternal life is through faith, belief, and a commitment of their lives. And so they'll say, hey, believe on Jesus Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and commit and surrender and pledge allegiance to Jesus. Bend your knee, confess that he is Lord. What does that mean and where are people, what are people saying in that? Ultimately, I think what they're saying is that it's not just that you have to believe on Jesus, but that you actually have to make a change of behavior and a disassociation from sin and a pledging of allegiance and a promise of surrender to Jesus Christ. Is that what is required? I'll argue to you guys that I think that is a product of a misunderstanding of the word repentance. Okay, I think often for you and I in our Bible Belt world, we in churches and in our Christian bubble, especially here at Texas A&M, and especially for those that want to talk theology, uh, there are all kinds of Christianese words that get thrown out. Okay, And we all have heard these words and we all use these words, but I'd argue at some level, sometimes we don't even have any idea what we're talking about. Okay, And I think repentance is a wonderful example of that. Uh, when I was in AP English uh, in high school, uh, I, I'm a math science guy, so English was brutal for me, okay? So I would, I would write my papers that would take hours, uh, and sometimes even tears, I'll admit it, all right? I hated writing, okay? I'd write, and I'd get this paper finally done, and the last step I would take would be this. I would get, I'd be in a word processor document, and I'd begin to right-click on every sixth or seventh word, okay? And what I would do is I would look for the thesaurus, and I would look to upgrade my vocabulary, all right? Maybe some of you guys have did this, maybe even on your Texas A&M application. I don't know, okay? But so every sixth or seventh word, I'd upgrade my vocabulary, and I would choose a word that apparently had a similar meaning to the word I was, was using. But more than likely, it was a word I had no idea what it meant, and I had no idea how to use it, all right? And, and I thought I was going to fool the professor, that never worked, okay? So finally my professor sat me down after about a month and he had about three papers of evidence and he said, hey, I know exactly what you're doing and you have no clue the words you're using, okay? I think sometimes in a Bible Belt Christian bubble that you and I live in, we do the same thing with all kinds of spiritual jargon, all right? Here at church, uh, we have all kinds of insider language. And the reality of that insider language is that we're all using the same words, but sometimes few of us even have any idea what we're talking about, all right? One of those words in particular is the word Repentance. What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to respond in obedience to the command repentance? Ultimately, some are going to argue that, that what it means is, is a change of behavior and it's calling unbelievers, those who've never entered in the front door into a relationship with Jesus Christ, to not only believe but to change their behavior. And in fact, I'm going to give you guys a quote of someone who would say this. And in fact, I'll tell you guys, it's probably one of your favorite podcasters, okay? Here we go. It's been said, and I'll show you who says this in a minute, uh, saving faith is no simple thing. It has many dimensions. Believe on the Lord Jesus is a massive command. It contains a hundred of other things, like what? Uh, We must believe on Jesus and receive him and turn from our sin and obey him and humble ourselves like little children and love him more than we love our family, 
our possessions, or our own life. This is what it means to be converted to Christ. This alone is the way of life everlasting. All right, according to John Piper, and I'm pulling this from his book, Desiring God, so that I'm not just pulling this out of context. If you want to look it up, chapter 2, Desiring God, okay? I'll tell you guys right now, I, I, I've read more Piper than I've read of any other author, okay? And before I kind of uh, disagree here on one issue, I want you guys to know, I think he's an amazing man of God. I think the Lord is using him in miraculous and, and powerful ways, okay? But I simply disagree on one little point here in some of the things that he writes, and that's this. Piper is going to have a different idea of what's required to get in the front door and into a relationship with Jesus Christ. According to Piper, what's required is this. Not just belief on the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but you also must make a pledge and a surrender and allegiance to Jesus in all of your life. So specifically, he says, it's not just about believing and receiving, but you also must turn from your sin and obey him. Change your behavior, change your allegiances, change your loves. If you can do all those things, then you can get in the front door and into a relationship with Jesus Christ and be converted. Let me say as clear as I can, I think that is a distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a string that's been attached to faith. All right, Faith and repentance do go together, but repentance is not at all, I think, defined in the way that Piper is using it in this particular context. Here's another quote of what he's going to say. Piper will say, A full and free amnesty or reconciliation, a wiping of the debt, is offered to all rebel subjects, all those who have sinned. If they will turn away from their rebellion, call on him for mercy, bow before his throne, and swear allegiance and fealty to him forever. This is Piper's idea of what's required to get in the front door. Now, if some of y'all are getting quiet, it's because you're probably like me wondering, I haven't done this yet. (laughs) Uh, um, This is a command, this is a, a responsibility and a level of commitment that I'm realizing week in and week out, even in my 30s now, I've yet to accomplish and yet to realize. Does that mean that I've not yet entered the front door? Absolutely not, because that's not what's required to get in the front door. Okay, I want you guys to see these quotes and see these renderings, because this is what it sounds like. Uh, as you challenge and as you hear the gospel offer, are you commanded to change your behavior? I'd say absolutely not. What you're commanded to do is to come to Jesus, to believe and to receive an absolutely free gift that is not at all conditioned on what you do before you get there. All right. I grew up in a Baptist church. Every Sunday, again, the altar call. And every Sunday, I remember hearing and, and singing, Come just as you are. <laughs> The idea was, hey, you are a broken mess like the rest of us who are still broken and still struggling. And if you've not yet entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, don't worry about it. Don't clean things up. Don't make things more presentable like we do every Sunday morning when we get fancy dressed up, right? As if we're trying to present ourselves even better to Jesus. Hey, no, no, stop that. Just come just like you are. And all your filth and all your mess and all your brokenness and all your fears and insecurities, come to Jesus just like that. And then he'll begin to come into your life, fix, change, and transform you. But you don't have to fix all that before you come. And so for some, they're going to say you've got to fix it all before you even get in the front door. And yet, for many of us who have already been in the front door, we still think that even today. And so we're messing up, we're struggling in some area of our life, and we think, hey, before I actually come and confess this to Jesus, let me get it in order. <laughs> let, let me try to get this thing cleaned up, fixed up, even more presentable, so that I can then approach him in his throne of grace. Which again, even in his throne of grace, we're always going to get what we don't deserve. So I want to challenge you guys, whether you are trying to get to the front door or whether you've already entered into the front door into a relationship with Jesus Christ, come just as you are. It's not about getting everything fixed, okay? It's not about swearing and pledging perfect allegiance to him just to enter into a relationship with him. That to me is a dramatic distortion of the freeness of the gospel of grace. In fact, I think in many regards, people that have had that view who have attached commitment onto faith in order to get in the front door have made entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ a lot like entering into marriage. All right, here's what I mean. 
for a guy to enter into marriage, all right, for him to enter in and to hear I do on a wedding day, how did he get there? Was it free? Absolutely not, right? In fact, any guy who is engaged, any guy who has arrived at a wedding day knows this. The moment that you begin to plan on engagement, you're going to write a multi-thousand dollar check, all right? The surprise for some of you guys who have not yet gotten engaged is you're going to write another big old whopping check for a wedding ring, all right? Wedding band. It goes with the engagement ring. Didn't know that when I was single, all right? Surprise, all right? So not only are you going to be writing multi-thousand dollar checks for rings, you're also going to then, the moment you get engaged and begin to plan on where you're going to live, you're going to write another big whopping possibly over a $1,000 check for two months of down payment of an apartment that now you won't be splitting with three other roommates, all right? It gets expensive, okay? And that's not to mention all the roses and all the flowers and all the chick flicks that you set through to get there, right? (laughs) You with me? All right. Marriage is wonderful, all right? But you don't enter into it freely, okay? That could be nothing more contrary to entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing could be more contrary from that. To enter into marriage, you pay great costs and you make great pledge of commitment and vows to a woman as you stand there on a wedding altar, okay? Entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ, absolutely contrary to that. Why is that? Because there's one who's already done all that for you, okay? It comes at great cost to him, but is absolutely free to you. You arrived on that day and you said, I do, and you said, I will come and I will accept and I will receive and I will believe. And it has nothing to do with what I've done because if it's based on what I've done, I'm in a whole lot of trouble, all right? That's what it means to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But how did some people get there? What does it mean to repent? I want to give you guys just a few quick minutes on this idea. What does it mean to repent, all right? Matthew chapter 3, this is one of the first places we find it in the Gospels. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. So what does it mean to repent? Who is being told to repent? And if they repent, what do they get? All right, three major questions that you've got to answer every time. Who is being told to repent? What does it mean they have to do? And then lastly, what do they get for doing it? All right. What does it mean? First of all, who is being told to repent? This is John the Baptist telling the Jewish nation to repent. What does he want them to do? The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What must they do? They must change their behavior. John the Baptist wants the Jewish nation to change their behavior and specifically to bear fruit. And if they will bear fruit, what will happen? They won't be burned in fire. Okay? Here's the idea. The idea was this. For the Jewish nation, God had entered into a covenant relationship with them, and he extended his promises to them in the Old Testament. In fact, your Gospels in your New Testament is actually far more Old Testament than it is New Testament. John the Baptist is not a New Testament apostle, but he is an Old Testament prophet. He comes in the form and the sound of an Old Testament prophet as well. What is he saying to the Jewish nation? He's saying this. Hey, if you don't change your lives, if you don't change your behavior, Jesus is coming, your king, and he will judge you. All right, in the Old Testament, what did uh, God told the nation of Israel? He told them this, that if you obey me, I will bless you magnificently. But if you disobey me, my covenant people, I will curse you magnificently. <laughs> and so as you walk through the Old Testament, what do you see over and over again? You see the prophets declaring to the nation of Israel, hey, are you wondering why you're not in the land of Israel? Are you wondering why enemies are crushing you? And are you wondering why you aren't getting any harvest and any fruit and any money and any clothes? It's because you're disobeying me. And the moment they repent, the moment they change their behavior and then begin to walk with God again, what happens? They get blessing. They get on the land. Uh, They get peace on the land. Enemies aren't crushing them. And they get blessings on the land. All right? Same thing in the New Testament. Uh, This nation, this generation of Israel is going to come. They're going to have an opportunity to receive their king who will set up a kingdom and remove the, the threat and the reign of the Romans upon them. When they don't receive their king, what happens? AD 70, Jerusalem is destroyed. 
It is a fulfillment of covenant curses to the covenant people of God. The gospel in the gospels is not the gospel that you and I preach and you and I hear. Let me say that again. The gospel that is in the gospels is not the gospel that you and I preach. Some of y'all may think I just committed heresy. Okay, What does gospel mean? Literally, from the Greek, it literally means, translated in English, good news. The gospel is literally good news. So what is the good news is what you have to ask every single time. For the nation of Israel, in the beginning part of the gospels, the good news was this. Hey, you are under stinky circumstances. The Romans are crushing you and beating you down. And guess what? The king is coming. And if you'll receive the king, you're going to have freedom and peace on the land, and you're going to have blessings on the land. That was the good news for the nation of Israel, all right? And if they would have changed their behavior, they would have received that and had that experience, okay? But that is different, though, than the good news that you and I have heard and you and I have responded to. What is that good news? Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 47. This is the good news that you and I are familiar with. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. So, New message, new content of good news. And notice, again, the repetition of repentance. What did repentance mean? And who is being told to repent? Here, a few verses earlier, Jesus has just showed up to his disciples. Disciples who were freaked out and scared because he had just been crucified. All right, He just showed up. He's just appeared to them. He showed them his, his, his holes. He showed them where he was crucified. And he just ate some fish. Why? Kind of freaky. Resurrected Jesus eating fish. Maybe he's hungry. What was the point? The point was he wanted his disciples to change their mind about who he was. That he had, he had said that he would die and resurrect. They hadn't believed him, and now he wants them to change their mind about that. In fact, he wants them to go, then go into all the nations and, and declare a new message. Not that if you obey God and obey his law, he'll bless you, but now a message of, hey, if you will believe in Jesus Christ who died, buried, resurrected, then you will have forgiveness of sins. So they're to go into all the nations and proclaim a message and challenge men and women to change their mind about Jesus. Nothing about change of your behavior. But you do find change of behavior with regarding 2 Corinthians. Here's another example, all right? I'm, Paul says, I'm afraid that when I come again, I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. What does Paul want to do here? He wants the Corinthian believers who are within the church, who are committing all kinds of horrible sin, he wants them to stop it, knock it off, change your behavior, okay? So let me kind of sum up. What does repentance mean? It means a change of behavior, change of mind, or and or change of attitude, okay? Sometimes when repentance shows up in the scriptures, it may mean only change of mind. Sometimes it may mean only change of behavior. Sometimes it may mean all of those, okay? And the difference is, who is being told to repent? And if they do that, what do they get? For the nation of Israel, if they repented, they would have gotten covenant blessings. For the nations, if they repent and change their mind about Jesus the Messiah, they'll get forgiveness of sins. For a believing church who's committing sin, if they will change their behavior, they get restoration. My point is this. Repentance is one of these Christianese jargon words that shows up all through the scriptures that we hear all the time in in preaching podcasts, but very few of us have ever actually taken a look and seen when does it occur and how does it use throughout the scriptures. Your idea of what repentance means is more than likely based on what you've heard in the past. What I want to challenge you to do is look in the scriptures and say, hey, how are you to find repentance? Who's being told to repent and what do they get if they repent? And my thesis, my point is this. An unbelieving audience is never told to change their behavior in order to get through the front door and into a relationship with Jesus Christ and to get eternal life. So if, if someone's going to say, hey, you've got to change your behavior to get forgiveness of sins, you've just misinterpreted repentance and you've added a string and you've added a condition onto faith. And those that will hold that view, I will tell you, if you read through The Desiring God or you read through a book like John MacArthur's The Gospel According to Jesus, 
more often than not, they've begun to redefine that, and here's why. They've spent a, a lifetime within a church, and they've watched believers who aren't living perfectly, and they've been yelling at them, and they're not changing. And so what they decided to do is instead of trying to get these people to change, let's add requirements at the front door so that maybe we get some better people in. So they've begun to up the ante at the front door, but what they've begun to do is they've begun to distort the very message of the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. And I will tell you, over time I've mellowed on a lot of disagreements and things in theology, but I will tell you there's nothing that fires me up and angers me more than messing with the conditions of the gospel of grace. It is an absolutely free gift, and there are no strings attached, and it's not one of these things that you hear, you get a letter in the mail, and the more you find out, the more uh, fine print you read, you realize there's a whole bunch of stuff you've got to do before you get it. All right, to receive Jesus Christ and to enter into a relationship with him, all you have to do is believe, receive, and accept and open yourself up to him. All right, it's not based on baptism, it's not based on repentance, it's not even based on a promise of what you will do for him. It's based only simply on coming just as you are and saying, hey, I'm a broken, utter mess. I want to kind of give you guys two challenges, and one is this. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, we are going to be as clear as we could ever be and say there's nothing you can do to merit his approval, and his favor. And so if you're trying to merit it and you're trying to do a bunch of good stuff, stop it. (laughs) It is an absolutely free gift that's been granted to you. And sometimes when you get something that's absolutely free and yet comes with great value, it is insulting. (laughs) It is insulting to think that you cannot merit this gift. It, It means that you are in a place that you cannot ever do enough good things. And God has said, you know what, I'll come in and intervene and fix this for you. And it is insulting, it's humbling. And you have to come before your knees and say, Lord, thank you so much for what you've done on my behalf. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, I'd love to encourage you to begin to think through that and, and to wrestle with that and ask, hey, if it's not based on what I've done, it's just based on believing in Jesus Christ. Who do I think Jesus is? And do I think that he's died, buried, resurrected? And if not, why? And if you want to talk through that some more, I'd love to and wrestle with you and talk through that even after this morning. But if you are here this morning and you have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you know it is your responsibility to be an ambassador of the message of the gospel of good news. Of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of grace, of truth, that, that, you've invi- that the world has been invited into a relationship with Jesus. And my question for you is, what are you and how are you inviting men and women into that? Are you attaching strings to it? Are you asking for pledges of commitments? Or are you just saying, hey, here's what Jesus has done. Will you change your mind about him? And will you come to him just as you are? And if you are adding additions and strings to it, I think you've distorted the very message of the gospel of grace and distorted the freeness of it. And nothing, nothing could be more tragic, to be perfectly honest. But if you are here this morning, and I continue to say one of the things I love about uh, the book of Romans is what you're going to see is Paul presents the reality of grace, one of the things that always happens to him as he presents the gospel of grace, the gospel of good news of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, is people always misunderstand him that what he is saying is you can live however you want. Because the reality is if grace always triumphs over what you've done and you can never merit grace and it's going to always cover over whatever transgressions, past, present, or future that you will do, the reality becomes, and the assumption becomes then, if that's the nature of grace, could I live however I want? In fact, in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, someone will say to Paul, what shall we say then? Shall we sin so that grace could increase? Paul was constantly misunderstood as preaching a gospel that said you could do whatever you wanted after you entered the front door. In fact, in two weeks, that's where we're going to go, is this topic. Uh, if you've entered the front door, then can you live however you want? <laughs> if you've entered the front door and into a relationship with Jesus Christ, can you live like hell but still go to heaven? <laughs> um, that's where we're going to go this morning. But I want to separate these two ideas because one idea is if you've entered the front door, then what inevitably should happen in your life? I'm not talking about that this morning. What I'm talking about is what is required just to get in. 
What's required just to enter into this process? Because I think all the things that will follow are things that are tied to faith, but they are not a substitute for faith, nor are they initially required along with faith to get in. All right, faith is all that's required to start the process and, and begin a starting place with Jesus Christ. And to add anything to that is a distortion of the gospel. And we'll talk in two weeks about once you've entered the door, what happens? All right, we'll talk through that in two weeks. All right, but let me close with this simple idea as we kind of wrap up. If eternal life is something that you and I have received freely, it is not cheap. All right, you and I have received it absolutely freely, and that does not mean that it has no value or that it is cheap in any way, kind of form. One of my favorite verses is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You receive a gift absolutely freely, but it was not provided freely. It was provided at exceedingly great cost. It came with the cost of a spotless lamb who was slain on your behalf. And as Christ was crucified on his cross and his blood came, it was the very symbol of what has cleansed you. And so even though you and I can receive this absolutely freely, there was a groom who came and who paid great cost to receive you and I to himself. And it is not that you and I are making pledges and promises to him, but that he has done that already on our behalf, and he's accepted us absolutely unconditionally just as we are. And it is an absolutely free gift. And so what I want to do this morning as we close is wrap up and allow us to kind of respond in worship. I think one of the greatest things we could do this morning is respond in worship to him who has provided that great gift of salvation to us him who has given us a great gift beyond what we could ever merit or earn. And I want us to have an opportunity just to respond in thanksgiving. Stand and sing with me this morning. Father, we give you great thanks for to you alone belongs the highest praise. Uh, that you have done what none of us could do. That you have fixed the problem of our life. Uh, that you have fixed and transgressed and, and paid the penalty for our sin. That you've ushered us into a new relationship with you. That you've reconciled that which we could not fix, Father. And I pray that you would give us great confidence to approach your throne of grace. Coming just as we are. Whether we've entered into that relationship for the first time or not. Uh, that no matter where we've been. Uh, no matter what we've been through. No matter what our eyes have seen. No matter what our hands have done that you would usher us in, that you would invite us in to come just as we are. And then in your grace, you'd begin to transform us and to provide us new loves. But I pray that you would give us a sense of just how free that offer is and all that you've done on our behalf, Lord. We give you great thanks, Lord. And we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. You guys have a great weekend and we'll see you guys next week.